Sports Business Radio launched in 2004. Brian Berger has interviewed the biggest names in sports and business. Let's step into the Sports Business Radio vault and look back on some of our favorite conversations. Ian Happ of the Chicago Cubs and Gracie Gold, two-time U.S. national champion figure skater and Olympic bronze medalist. Now, enter the Sports Business Radio vault. Now, here's Brian's conversation with Ian Happ from November 2021. My guest is Ian Happ of the Chicago Cubs. The Cubs selected Happ in the first round of the 2015 Major League Baseball draft. He made his Major League Baseball debut in 2017. He's the host of the Compound Podcast, part of the John Boy Media Network, which Happ is invested in. You can follow him on Twitter at IHAP underscore one. Ian, thanks for joining me on Sports Business Radio. How are you? I'm doing great. Thanks for having me. Let's start with talking about your podcast. I've had lots of athletes on in the last couple of years who have started podcasts. Why did you start a podcast? And tell us a little bit about it. I've listened and I really like it. Thank you. Yeah, it was something that was kind of born um, as we were shut down by the pandemic last spring. You know, the, the NBA got shut down and um, you know, baseball got shut down kind of one, two weeks before the start of our season. So I was already in Arizona. Um, didn't we didn't know exactly when we'd start back up? Kind of at first, they told us, "Hey, hang out. It'll be a week, maybe two, and then we'll see what happens." And of course, we don't end up playing again until uh, July. So I was staying in Arizona um, at a house. I had plenty of space, and so I invited three guys to live with me who I had played with um, the year prior in the minor leagues. Uh, and so we were all in this house and. The, the world and the sports world was started for content. So I kind of forced these guys. I said, look, we're going to try to do a podcast. We're going to see how it goes. Um, and we're going to try to provide some content and just kind of talk about what we're doing right now, our experiences, um, you know, our baseball lives, try to interview some people and kind of give that behind the curtain uh, look. It had always been something that, that I was interested in, trying to talk to my teammates, my friends, uh, as people, not just as kind of a zoo animal athlete uh, that everybody looks at and gets to see what they do for three hours a day, but but somebody who's a real person that has a family that has interest, kind of dive into that, um, and like I said, kind of peel behind the curtain. And and it, it's been awesome. We're sneaking up on. Uh, we'll probably record tonight, maybe episode eighty five, eighty six, somewhere in there. So we've been been going strong, and it's been a lot of fun just to see the the fan reaction and how much people have enjoyed it. Good for you. The consistency of doing it is, you know, the big thing. There's so many podcasts that start, but then they just go away. And I love the consistency of yours. It comes out every Tuesday, right? Yep. Every Tuesday, we try to record either Sunday or Monday night, and it comes out every Tuesday. It's definitely been uh, a difficult thing uh, during the season. Uh, it gets a little tough sometimes, with especially with the three of us that do the podcast together. We were all in different places. My buddy Zach Short was with the Tigers. Um, up and down. So he was between Detroit and Toledo and then Dakota, I guess was in, in Iowa with our AAA team at the cups. And I, I of course was in Chicago. So three, three guys traveling, different schedules, different off days, different time zones. Uh, so coordinating that was tough. We didn't always during the season, get it out perfect on Tuesday. Um, but we tried to do our best and kind of let the fans know when, when we were going to miss. And there's a human element to that too. It's kind of, Hey, Sorry, we're, we stink, but uh, it'll be out at some point. <laughs> when you go to some of your teammates or friends in, in baseball and ask them to come on your podcast, are they pretty willing? Or are they like, yeah, I don't know? Yeah, for the most part, guys are pretty willing because um, there's just so many media sources, landscapes that it, it's easy for you know, guys to trust us. It's easy to say, Hey, we're not going to make you look stupid. We're not going to ask you any questions that are too hard. If there's anything you don't like, we're going to cut it. Um, we just want to give that kind of behind the scenes look and let guys talk about what they want to talk about. You know, if a guy has a product that he's really pumped up about that he's endorsing, if the guy has something that's going on in his life, he wants to talk about, um, if there's something, a guy just wants to get off his chest or or just he wants people to kind of know his interests. I think we try to do a good job of, of talking about those. Honestly, with the um, schedule during the season, it was difficult to get guys on because there's just such a demand on your time. You didn't want to ask 
uh, a friend for a half hour or an hour in the middle of the season. So that was something I thought going into it, it would be easier to have uh, guys on. Um, but at some point you just, you don't want to bother, um, you want to bother guys. So we, we've, we've kind of done more of recapping or talking amongst ourselves about our experiences than we have guests, but it's always fun um, when you get somebody on and able to kind of chat. We had Josh Donaldson on um, not too long ago, a couple of weeks, and I think we could have talked to him for three or four hours <laughs> if, if we had the format. Yeah. I mean, sometimes that's a great thing about podcasting is you can just go on forever if you want, or you can, you know, record three or four hours and break it up into a few different podcasts, but there's no time constraints this started as a radio show and you've got to take a break every 10 or 15 minutes and i hated it because if you have someone who wants to go beyond the boundaries of what radio can provide i wanted to be able to do that so i think that is the good thing about podcasting yeah and it's been exceptional for us just you know depending on the week depending on uh how much we have to talk about you know especially if there's a time constraint for us early on there was some there was some 25 30 minute episodes we thought that that was where we needed to be to be more consumable. Um, and then we've kind of, people have enjoyed us. We've built our audience base to people who are willing to listen. So our typical is probably 35 to 45, but like Josh is a great example. We had him on and we did like an hour 20 uh, nonstop. So it was just being able to, to have the flexibility to do that, to not have to cut somebody off uh, and to let us uh, kind of get their complete thoughts out there. So when you joined us on the sports PR summit, uh, virtual panel last week about mental health. And thank you again for doing that. It's such an important conversation. And we'll get into that further in this conversation. But one of the things I said to you is if I could pick one venue to play in, and all of baseball is my home field, it would be Wrigley field. So tell our listeners, what is it like going to Wrigley field and suiting up and, and getting to play in such a historic venue on a regular basis? Yeah, it's, it's extraordinary. I, I didn't realize it at the time when I got drafted how amazing it was going to be. Um, and even the first time I was out there, it, I, it wasn't with fans. Like it, it wasn't a state. I was out there for a, a pre-draft workout. It, it was beautiful, but I didn't really realize how special it was going to be. Then when I finally, you know, I got called up in 2017 and was, was there. Um, and you step on the field and you just feel this presence. It has its own um, kind of life where you you can feel that Babe Ruth played there and called his shot. You can feel Artie Banks and Ron Santo and Ryan Sandberg. You can feel all of the memories and all the history. Uh, and and the fan base is just so exceptional because it can be uh, one o'clock on a Tuesday and there's forty thousand people there in July uh, screaming and being excited for baseball. Uh, and it just does, it feels different than anywhere else. Uh, it, it's so fortunate to be able to play there every day um, and, and call that home. Uh, and, and it's really, really cool for me now um, when I'm in Chicago during the off season uh, to be able to go down there and work out and kind of have free reign of that place. It's trying not to take it for granted because <laughs> it's not a bad place to call your office. Oh my gosh. I think it's the best office. One of the best offices in all of sports. So last year, Ian, you really caught fire. It's like something clicked with you. You hit 16 of your career high 25 home runs, I think after July 27th. So your final 60 games, it was like you were just in a zone and dialed in and playing some of the best baseball of your career. What clicked for you? Uh, you know, there was a lot of different things that went on. We, we had a big shakeup on the teams for yeah. personnel. Um, I, I got a chance to play every day down the stretch. Um, and then, there's just a lot of a lot of mindset change. Um, getting into a place where I, I let myself go. I stopped worrying about the stats. Stopped worrying about the numbers because there was there was a real chance, um, kind of in the middle of the year, that 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 could have been by far the worst season of my career. Uh, and so being able to kind of let that go and say, look, if that's what's going to happen, that's what's going to happen. Can't fight um, the first four months of the season. Can't change it. Um, and being able to kind of loosen myself up to just go out and play. Um, go and take it one day at a time, really, really be present. Um, that, that helped me to just kind of start getting headed in the right direction and build that confidence uh, and then be able to let it go from there. The good news is, like you said, is you got to play more after the shakeup. But the bad news is 
you lost a lot of friends and, and iconic pieces of that team. And, you know, as someone who grew up a Cubs fan and was so excited when the team won the World Series a few years ago, I was sad to see some of the core pieces of that team traded. But what is it like when you're in a locker room and it's trade deadline? And it, honestly, I can't remember a baseball trade deadline where a team has kind of remade themselves more than the Cubs did at this last trade deadline. It was a crazy deadline for a lot of reasons. And one of those was because 2020, there there wasn't that. In 2020, you know, with the short season, there was a little trade deadline, but it was more. Um, nobody wanted to give away a ton of pieces. There was a ton of action in 2020. And everybody was kind of hoarding because the financial situations were so um, uh, just, just uncertain. And so it was kind of all packed into 2021 where everybody was moving around money, not only players, but money. Uh, and then it became for us just this perfect storm of the situation we were in as a team, our record, uh, kind of a, a 11 game losing streak just a couple of weeks prior. Uh, and then all of these guys that were on one year deals, um, with uncertain futures in the Cubs uniform. And I tried to prepare myself, um, but we had never been through it before. We had always been adding at the deadline, you know, my first four years. Mm-hmm. So, um, to actually go through the opposite um, and, and be sellers, I didn't realize how emotional it would be. I didn't, <laughs> I knew, you know, playing with these guys for five, six years, getting so close, um, you know, some of my best friends in the world got traded, uh, but I didn't realize how much, um, you know, you would think back to five years of memories to my life for my debut um, in St. Louis hitting between, uh, Schwab and Riz and KB and like warming up with those guys out there. Like my first spring training, like you start thinking back to these memories. Uh, and when I got called up, you know, it was, it was such a cool thing for me to be playing with those guys. Um, you're kind of playing with your baseball cards, you know, I always say that yeah. like John Lester and John Lackey and Anthony Rizzo and Craig Kimbrell. Like I'm playing with dudes who I played video games as their <laughs> player or collected their baseball card. And then, they become friends and you kind of go through this whole emotional journey that day uh, of some of the things that had happened. Um, and it was, it was, it was a crazy, crazy time, but um, you know, then being able to watch those guys succeed in other uniforms and cheer for them and have friends across the league now um, was, was a pretty cool experience on the back end of that as well. Dig in on that a little bit more. What is that like when you have had baseball cards or played video games of some of these guys, and then you're their teammate. How do you go from, wow, I really admired these guys to, you know what, I got to act like I belong here and, and fit right in and, and not fan out here a little bit because uh, they need my help to win. That's the, yeah, that's the maturation process. That's it. You kind of go from, I think that's what ties back to the podcast. It's what we're trying to give fans. You know, mm-hmm. you're never going to get to a point where, you know, you see John Lester on the street and you go, oh, I feel like I really know that guy, but we're trying to get a little bit closer to these are, you know, once you're in the same room, once you, once you share stories, once you hang out and bond over, over different things, you know, John and I and Riz like bond over golf and wine. And we talk about, you know, they're, they're just, you're just normal people. You're just talking about uh, shared interest. Um, and it's pretty cool to get to hear their stories of the game. It's pretty cool to get to hear the things that they have done. But at the same time, um, you know, once, once you share uh, 200 straight days in a locker room together, uh, you get pretty close to those people and get to know them pretty well, get to know their families. Um, and that's kind of the most special part of the entire thing is being able to, you know, know John Lester's three kids and, and when their birthdays are. And, and those are like, those are, you know, the, the real moments of when uh, you really feel that, that connection and that, that special um, part of this game. Yeah, that's fantastic stuff. I want to talk to you a little bit about the state of major league baseball, because I've heard you guys talk about it on the compound podcast. So, you know, you've got this potential lockout looming, Um, you know, I've heard you guys talk about the popularity of the game and when games should be starting like the world series. And just as a player, what do you think the state of baseball looks like right now? Let's start with, do you think there's going to be a lockout? We'll see. We'll see. I think there's going to be, there's going to be a lot that happens in the Mm -hmm. next two weeks. Yeah. We're on, I had a, I had a call earlier today. Um, we're on calls constantly. Um, we're, we're working on it. I could tell you that. 
Um, it's just, a, there's a lot of pieces that, you know, the pandemic derailed some things. There was a lot of, um, having to worry about the 2020 season and then 2021 season, how that was going to start. And then all of the things that come along with playing a season in the midst of a pandemic. So uh, a lot of the actual collective bargaining negotiations were tabled to deal with present issues. And now we're trying to, we're trying to play catch up a little bit, but I can say that it, it's just, I've never been through one of these before. This will be my first, the last agreement was done right before I, I was called up, but it, it is all of the things can be close, but getting any, every single part of this thing to the finish line uh, is difficult. And I know that the thing that's talked about the most in the media is probably the core economics of, of you know, how does free agency work? How does arbitration work? How do guys get paid? Um, the luxury tax, the, the um, you know, h- how all of the teams and their revenue share, like those are the things that are talked about the most in the media, but there are so many more things that go into this agreement. It is so detailed. It is every single part from drug testing to um, how uh, disputes are handled to the entire process of this collective bargaining. Uh, it's, it's been eye opening for me. I knew a lot. I'm there. I'm our team rep and I've been very involved with Mm. the the players association for since I got called up, but, uh, it's amazing how many little things go into this and how, how everything has to come together. Um, kind of, uh, before that date. So we'll see. I think, I think there's, like I said, that those kind of last four or five days, maybe seven days, though, there'll be a lot that happens. You're listening to sports business radio. We'll be right back after this. There's nothing common about you. Not your talent, your drive, your achievements, or even your challenges. You need distinctive financial strategies that match your lifestyle and career trajectory. Morgan Stanley Global Sports and Entertainment was created to address your specific needs at every stage of your career and deliver the financial education and strategies you need to help advance your game plan. They speak the language. They know your business. Morgan Stanley will work with you to achieve your goals. I've trusted Morgan Stanley with my personal wealth management for almost 20 years. Visit Morgan Stanley at morganstanley.com backslash GSE. That's morganstanley.com backslash GSE. Now back to Sports Business Radio with Brian Berger. Rob Manfred, the commissioner of Major League Baseball, has said that baseball is becoming more and more of a regional sport. I look at a brand like the Cubs, and I think there's Cubs fans all over the country, not just in Chicago or in the Midwest. Do you think baseball's become more of a regional sport? Should there be some realignment? Like, should the Cubs and the White Sox be in the same division so they can play more games against each other? If you were going to reshape this, uh, how would you reshape it? I, you know, I, it's very interesting. I, I think there's there's two parts that I think one, baseball was a regional sport, probably the most it's ever been you know, early on because you read your local paper, you got your local television station, you know, you listened to your local radio. You weren't listening. You weren't being, you couldn't watch the angels play if you lived in New York and you couldn't, you know, the only reason that the Cubs and the Braves have such great fan bases is because they were nationally available every day. Right. WGN, and then um, with you know, TBS uh, and, and the Braves. So, the baseball is as national as it's ever been. I, in my opinion, with all of the games that are televised with MLB network, with Sunday night baseball, um, the ratings are as good as they've ever been. There's more podcasts and more separate media about baseball than there's ever been. Um, and, and, and I think with sports betting, I think sports betting is making it, uh, super national because you have people from all over the country, you know, betting on different games, betting on different players, being able to participate and be a part of the action. Um, I do think there are some, some, uh, as far as like knowing individual players, I think it can be very regional. I think, you know, I don't know that there's a ton of San Diego Padres fans that know who I am or vice versa. Um, but, the, the Cubs fan base, I will tell you, is about as national as it gets. Yeah. And I, I know as, as a player for the Cubs, you're super thankful for that. And when we travel and how much people care, I, I do think it would be interesting to explore um, maybe some realignment. I think it probably makes sense for travel. I think it makes sense for 
you know, the fans would love for the Cubs and White Sox to play more often. I think the fans would love for Kansas City to play St. Louis and, and for the New York teams to play each other more. Uh, and I think it makes a lot of sense for, for travel to not have you know, Seattle have to go to uh, Texas uh, a bunch of times. And, and that, you know, the, the AL West and what that division looks like just from a travel perspective is super tough. So I think it might make sense to look into some sort of realignment. Um, but in no means, in no way do I think that this game is, is getting more regional. I think if anything, it's getting less regional. You mentioned something about the individual players themselves. I look at like, you know, the two stars on the Angels, Trout and Otani. And I wonder how many people in New York or Philadelphia or Boston or D.C. stay up till 1030 at night to watch the start of an Angels game. How many people on the East Coast really know, you know, the Dodgers and and what their players are all about. It's just interesting. And I know that exists in every sport. You know, LeBron James is in the, in the West coast with the Lakers and maybe people aren't staying up to, to watch Laker games. But do you think there's anything that can be done to engage fans with some of the best players in the game who play on the West coast after a lot of people have already gone to sleep? Yeah, I think there's, I think it's important for us to, to understand that and to try to combat it with day games with, Hmm. Hey, let's make, let's make sure that the, that LA is playing some one o'clock games uh, on Saturday. So that when, when people are out at the bar, you know, maybe starting happy hour four or five o'clock that they get to see Mike Trout play. Let's make sure that if somebody wants to sit down on Saturday night and watch a baseball game that, uh, you know, a couple times a month, Mike Trout's available. Let's make sure that when he's in New York, when they're playing the Yankees, when they're playing Boston, those games are televised and on national television. I, I think that you have to understand who your stars are and you have to make sure that they're marketed well. Like that's number one is making sure that these players are marketing, getting marketed well and their talent and ability is being shown because it's so incredible um, when you get to watch this in person every day, like when I get to play against Trout in spring training, I, I walk away from that game after three innings going like, that's unbelievable. <laughs> and so making sure that that that's highlighted, like, let's tell people how good this guy is. Let's tell the story. Let's show stats uh, that, that make it obvious how good this guy is because he's a generational talent, maybe the best we've ever seen. Uh, and everybody should know who he is and what he's doing. Yeah, and I feel like honestly, so you mentioned about your podcast, how you're helping fans know the the person a little bit more. I couldn't tell you three things about Mike Trout personally. You know, I know he's a great baseball player. I don't know anything about him. And it's not like he just came into the league, and I think that's bad for baseball. May, you know, and I pay attention to this stuff for a living. Yeah, yeah, it is. It, and it, it's amazing that, you know, you want to be able to tell everybody's story. You want to be able to kind of peek behind the curtain. Uh, and give fans not only in their their regional market, but in, on a national sense, like what these guys are doing, what they're about. Especially once guys have five, six, seven years in the league, uh, you want people to be able to have spent that time getting to know that player. Uh, and I think we can all relate to you know somebody that when you're you grow up in a city like I grew up in Pittsburgh, and so I can remember. You know, Jack Wilson as the shortstop and, and Jason Kendall and, and an outfield that had an Idra Morgan and Lastings Millage out there. Like you you start to remember uh, you know, Freddie Sanchez winning the batting title. Like everybody has where they grew up some players mm-hmm. that take them back to their childhood and that they. But why, why can't we do that on a more national sense? Why can't we give um, or at least that the regional sense let people know who these guys are and what they what they like to do and what they're interested in? I want to talk to you a little bit about mental health. We met through your partnership with Hyper Ice, and you are doing great things to raise awareness for mental health, not only for athletes, but for everyone. Um, You shared with us at Sports PR Summit that you lost your father to brain cancer in 2015 at the age of 58. Tell us a little bit about how the conversation has shifted. Cause you know, Ian, five years ago, people weren't coming out and talking about mental health because it was seen as like a sign of weakness. Now I think it's great. Naomi Osaka and, you know, Kevin Love and DeMar DeRozan and people like you are coming out and talking about that. How has that narrative changed? Uh, yeah, we talked about this a lot um, with, with Hyper Ice and Core is actually how I got in with Hyper Ice because they were cores recently acquired by Hyper right. Ice and, and, the core is this meditation ball um, that helps you 
kind of guides you through meditations. It's a physical tool. It gives feedback. Um, and, and talking about some mental health, there, there's more than just reactionary mental health. There's, there's proactive, um, you know, basically the, the way that you would prepare your body every day. You know, as an athlete, you care so much about your physical health, you know, how your body is moving, making sure that you're limber, making sure that you're strong, making sure that you have the, the strength that it takes to play your individual sport. But we, we don't think as much about uh, the mental health, about training your mind. Um, and that's something that I, I was always um, growing up really aware of baseball's the mental side of the game of baseball and that was dealing with failure and that was um you know breathing in between pitches and making sure you had a routine but then there's also the part of, of mental health that is everyday stuff um you know making sure that you're in the present and what that means uh, how the, the the future and the past affect you um and so it's something that when i lost my father uh as much as i thought that i had prepared myself um, mentally to play professional baseball, I could not have ever predicted, you know, losing, losing a parent at that age and then what that would do to me from a mental standpoint. So my brother actually recommended that I start meditating, um, start using headspace and, and start meditating kind of my first year of pro ball. Um, and it was a complete game changer to help me be present, to help me focus myself every day and get through, um, what was a super difficult time in my life, um, losing a parent. And then something that I've continued, I've continued to try to seek out better ways um, to work on my mental health and partnership with core um, and, and just continuing to make it a part of my daily routine. Uh, and the reason that I speak about it so openly is because the impact it's had on my life. But I also think uh, everybody goes through these struggles, um, whether it's in, you're a professional athlete or you're, you're working a nine to five. There's things that come up in your life. Um, that are difficult to deal with and having that practice of mental health every day to, to help you get through those things is just going to make um, your, your life you know, not necessarily always easier, but at least more manageable. Yeah, I tip my hat to you for, for speaking about this and for being you know so open about it. I do have the Hyperice Core meditation device and I use it and it certainly helped me a lot. And, uh, you know, I just think you're doing great work in that, in that area. So great job. Thank you very much. Yeah. It's an important thing that I think athletes come out and talk about it and make, make kind of help break that stigma, um, and, and make it an acceptable thing to talk about because no one's shying away from talking about how much they're, they're lifting in the weight room. So why should we shy away from talking about how much we're, we're meditating? Yeah, no, you're exactly right. All right. Before I let you go, um, I read something that, are you working with connect roasters and you like develop quarantine coffee. Uh, tell yeah. us about that. Cause I thought that was pretty clever and unique. Yeah, this is one of the most exciting um, things for me. My, my brother and I, uh, we, we work together um, on the investment side uh, and we've been always been huge uh, coffee lovers. So um, this was again, during the, the shutdown after spring training got shut down, I was in Arizona. I was on Twitter and I saw, um, this coffee company uh, from just from Bourbonnet, Illinois, which is about 45 minutes outside Chicago, uh, with really cool packaging and this good branding. So I thought, let me let me reach out to them. And I reached out and said, hey, you know, I'm in Arizona. I'm stuck without any good coffee. Is there any way you guys could send me a couple bags? And they, within two days, coffee was there, three different bags. I tried this stuff. I went out and bought a pour-over kit because I don't pour-over. And I went out and bought the whole thing and started doing pour over, I was, this is unbelievable. And so I, I reached out to the founder and kind of pitched him this idea of quarantine coffee. They were already doing a give back um, where they were giving a dollar per pound roasted to the communities where they were sourcing the actual coffee from the beans uh, and helping with, you know, schools and, and building um, different things in the community, whether it was Guatemala or Nicaragua or different places. So I knew they had that, that charitable component. And I reached out and said, Hey, what, what if we did a coffee called quarantine coffee? And, and we did, um, a give back to a couple organizations in Chicago to help with pandemic relief. So we, the Caleb, the founder was on board right away. He loved it. Uh, we had the packaging done in two weeks. We connected with Save the Children and with the Food Bank in Chicago, um, and we were giving 
three dollars uh, for every fifteen dollar bag to COVID relief. It was a uh, an awesome project, and uh, we we you know worked together so well that I invested in the company, um, and so we're in the middle of kind of we just released uh, cold brew. Um, we're working on our first physical location. Uh, we're doing kind of a rebrand and restructuring so that each different um, coffee roast will have its own charitable component. So if you want to um, support specifically the food bank, you can buy one specific roast. If you want to specifically support Save the Children, a different one. Uh, we're so excited about it. But the coolest part is it's unbelievable coffee. Uh, and and we're just, we're just thrilled with how it's going. Uh, we did a... Um, that was called the home run club this year, where every time I hit a home run, there was a subscription. And every time I hit a home run, if you're a part of the club, you got $5, uh, dinger dollars to the website to, to go buy, whether for merchandise or more coffee to give away. And so we, we've had a blast and, uh, I'm looking forward to just continuing the growth of the company. It's been a fun year. And, uh, I think next year is going to be even better. Look at you with connect roasters and John boy media. You're going to be on shark tank pretty soon. That's the goal, man. That was unbelievable. I'll try to play for another 10 years or so and then see if I can see if I can make the leap over there. That'd be great. That's has that always been something that has interested you, the business side? I mean, you mentioned you're the player rep for the Cubs, you're investing in these companies. It seems like you have a pretty sharp business mind as well. It's something I've always been passionate about um, for a few different reasons. I mean, I, I did. I went to school for finance. Um, I was in the Honors College at Cincinnati, and it was something that was really important to me. Um, but my brother is six years older. Uh, uh, he was a trader, uh, currency trader in Chicago is Notre Dame MBA. And then, um, one of the coolest things, um, in my professional career has been being able to work together on the business side. And we've done a ton of, of investing together. Um, we, we look at all of our deals, um, as kind of a team and, and we try to get really creative. I think that that's kind of been the most exciting part. Um, and, you know, we're trying to build something where athletes can invest alongside of, you know, family office clients. They can they can get the same access um, and the same diligence. And I think that's something that we're really excited about. But trying to put together a platform where where athletes can kind of put their deals together and then decide as a group if, if, what makes sense and, and, and what interests them, because, as athletes, you get presented a lot of things, but it's also it's difficult to understand or to know um, what deals are good and what deals are probably not exactly what you should be getting into. So it's there's it's been really cool in the last five years or so to see um, all the talk around athlete investing and have athlete investing go from a place where you know athletes were doing everything wrong, feeling broke, making horrible decisions, spending their money in terrible ways, to some really intelligent athlete investors that are in the venture world, you know, the Kevin Durant and Steph Curry's and LeBron James. And, and it can be done on a smaller scale. You know, it can be done uh, by guys that aren't superstars that aren't making uh, as much money as those guys are just, just in a smaller fashion. That's kind of what we're trying to build out. And it, it's a, been a pretty fun thing to be a part of. Ian Happ, outfielder of the Chicago Cubs, host of the Compound Podcast, part of the John Boy Media Network. You can follow him on Twitter at I. Hap, that's Hap with two P's, underscore one, the number one. Ian, thank you so much for joining me on Sports Business Radio. I love your story. I love what you're doing out there. And, you know, go Cubs. Thanks so much. Thanks for having me. You're listening to Sports Business Radio. We'll be right back. 5G is here. Is your stadium ready? From an immersive fan experience to efficient game day operations, 5G is transforming sports and entertainment. If you're ready to jumpstart your 5G transformation, look no further than Boingo Wireless. Boingo is one of the largest operators of indoor wireless networks in the U.S. They provide stadiums and arenas with state-of-the-art 5G networks and support teams across the NFL, NBA, Major League Baseball, Major League Soccer, at NCAA. I'm constantly interacting with sports executives, and the reason they love working with Boingo is because Boingo manages 5G and Wi-Fi networks end-to-end, offloading very stretched IT teams. Whether your stadium is looking to support mobile ticketing, cashless payment, or connected operations, Boingo has you covered. But don't just take it from me. Their customers include world-class venues like Soldier Field, State Farm Arena, 
Petco Park, and University of Louisville. Boingo in 5G. Now that's what I call a win-win. For a limited time, Boingo has a special offer for Sports Business Radio listeners. They're offering a free 5G assessment for your stadium or arena. To get started, simply email sbradio at boingo.com and mention this podcast. That's sbradio at boingo.com. Our thanks to Boingo for their continued support of Sports Business Radio. Now, here's Brian's conversation with Gracie Gold from July 2020. My guest is Gracie Gold. She is the 2014 and 2016 U.S. national champion figure skater, 2014 bronze Olympic medalist, one of the voices in the new documentary, The Weight of Gold, that premieres July 29th on HBO. You can follow her on Instagram at GracieGold95. Gracie, I have the utmost of respect for you speaking out about the importance of mental health. Your words have been inspiring and courageous. What led to your participation in the Weight of Gold documentary? I mean, I think it was that it was it's a documentary focusing on so many Olympians and our struggles with mental health because I felt, and this is true, like if there's a certain level of success in whatever you do or if there's a certain, it's kind of that expression of like, you know, be grateful other people have it worse. And sometimes I feel like Olympians, you know, we're seen as like superheroes, you know, like especially, especially one as accomplished as like Michael Phelps, you know, is in the documentary. He is the most accomplished. He's incredible. So a lot of people think, oh, well, what could he struggle with? Like he's Michael Phelps, you know, I have real problems when in fact, like that's part of the stigma of mental health is it can affect anyone. It's not doesn't care about gender, age, who you are, where you're from, or what you do. So I feel like there's kind of this, you know, what it takes to get to the Olympics. Everyone knows like, oh, you know, you have to practice all the time and like work really hard, but both emotionally and mentally, what you have to do to go through that process, not just the Olympics, like not just the Olympic year, but your entire life geared up to this one moment and then especially if that one moment doesn't go that well it's you know it can be devastating and even if it does go really well the aftermath of it so there was a sports doc you know just specifically speaking about the mental health issues that olympians and the olympic community go through it was something that hit so close to home that it was immediately on board Let's start with the training regimen. You started figure skating when you were eight years old, I read. And, you know, you just mentioned you're kind of isolated. The doc points this out, too, that your whole life is figure skating and practice and practice. And you're preparing for four minutes on the ice. And the training regimen, take me back to when you're eight and just your life of preparation and practice and everything for that four minutes. Yeah, so I started um, in Springfield, Missouri. Started skating. I went to a birthday party. After presents and cake, we jumped on the ice. And I immediately fell in love with skating. I'd never skated before. I didn't know anything about skating. Um, I mean, obviously, at eight years old, that's not shocking. Um, and it just kind of snowballed from there. But it was, as I started to go through the levels, I remember even the first year, my coach was like, she can't skate in rental skates anymore. Like she needs to buy her own skates. Like she needs to come twice a week and then like three times a week. Like, can she come on weekends? And then it's changed into before school and after school. So we were skating at five 30 in the morning and then we would go from practice to school. And then after school, we would go back to the rink. So, you know, so to speak, like working, um, you know, like 14 hour days. And then of course, homework. And then there's the need. You do need like some social times, you don't go totally insane. But and then as it progresses throughout the years, you know, it just gets more and more intense. So in high school, um, I did freshman year in public school before I switched to online. But I remember trying to balance a regular workload of school. And then we would get out early. So I got to skip 
gym because I was working out several hours, obviously at the rink in an office and like dry land training, but you know, schools was skating before going to school, getting out early to get more hours in. And then as you go through the levels and get older, you have to start incorporating more off-ice training, more dry lands, ballet, like all of these different things. So from a really young age, yeah, you're kind of like working already 12 to 14 hour days. And if you skip a day or skip a week, you know, it's not just, oh, like I didn't really feel like it today, like whatever, you know, it impacts, it's going to impact that like four minutes (laughs) when the whole entire world tunes in to see you with the American flag on your back. um, You know, it better be good. (laughs) The other thing I read in in an article with you, you said you wanted to be first and flawless. That's a lot of pressure for a young person. I have a 15 and a half year old daughter. So, you know, I have a little bit of insight as to, you know, raising a, a young person and, and, but having to be first and flawless, if that's your mindset, did you feel that added pressure? Oh, absolutely. Um, and now some, some of that was just naturally, I am a perfectionist and, you know, I just have really high expectations for myself and I demand the best for myself all the time. Like a lot of athletes have that personality trait. That's why we're really accomplished. We're really good. You know, we don't take okay or fine or, you know, I guess that was all right, you know, for an answer, you know, like we do it until the job is done. It's not just a hundred percent. It's not just 110%. It is the maximum that you can do. And then anything less than that. The kind of bad part is that anything less than that is just seen as trash. And yeah, to be flawless, especially in a sport, you know, like skating, where there's a huge aesthetic component, you know, it's not just how you do the jump, or it's not just if you land the jump or if you don't land the jump. It's like how you do it and how easy you make it look, how effortless put together all in a package. Um because other sports are, you know, it doesn't matter how you get the basketball in the hoop. Like, it's just from what line is how many points. If you barely make it, if it's like a surprise shot, that's great. But in skating, you know, we're rated from, we're judged really from the moment that we step on the ice to the moment that we exit, even in the kiss and cry box. Like, it's still, it's a sport that is, aesthetics are really high up on the list. But to have that kind of pressure to not only do something really hard, but to do it the best in the world and then to do it consistently while wearing a dress with makeup while millions of people are watching you, um, that kind of pressure and level to achieve perfection is really, really daunting. And we only have four minutes to do that. And I thought the weight of gold documentary did a really good job of, of bringing out all the work that is needed for, you know, your performance for performance like Michael Phelps, Bodie Miller, um, just the pressure of, it's not like you have a next game. Oh, I had an off game. I'll come back the next game with this. You've got four minutes. And if you don't have a great performance, then there's not a next game to go to, what does the system do with Olympians who aren't perfect, Gracie? By system, do you mean? Just, you know, I thought that was one of the things that stood out in the Weight of Gold documentary is you put, you know, there's there's campaigns, marketing campaigns, there's all this preparation, and anything short of gold is seen as a failure or it's just – you know, not seen as the pinnacle. And I, I thought that was a really sobering part of the documentary. Um, oh, for sure. I There are multiple different systems, which is why I was asking. As far as, um, I mean, even starting with just the general public, like people that are watching, you know, they only tune in for that moment. You know, they didn't see, even if you had won every single event leading up to the Olympics, even if you were you know, like the best in the United States, you were like the best at whatever, you know, if you mess up that moment, 
that's all like the general public remembers. And then, yeah, to kind of, especially, and then the better that you are, the higher rank that you are going into something like the Olympics, anything short, yeah, is seen as less than, and it's seen as it's disappointing, which everyone kind of knows, like, uh, you know, like the ongoing joke of like, it's worse when someone, you know, doesn't say that they're mad at you, that they're disappointed. Um, cause to know that you, it can be hard because you feel almost like you let all of these people down, whether it's fans, friends, coaches, your federation at the Olympics, uh, your country, like the entire country. Um, but you know, really only four or five people were maybe involved in the entire process leading up to it. So to feel that like, and I mean, a short program is almost three minutes. And then we have our long program or free program, which is four, seven and seven minutes, depending on how that goes, you either represented your country well, and you either made everybody proud or you disappointed everyone that's ever helped you. Um, and yeah, when it doesn't go well, you really do feel, especially if there were other people on the team or in whatever sport you are, like that did really well, then it's all about them, which makes sense because they did really well, but you feel cast aside and almost punished for not doing essentially what's like the impossible as well as you could. And I found, I found in, Sochi was really hard because I wasn't expected to medal because it was my first games. I was 18. There are a lot of people that didn't even think I would qualify. And then I came fourth and, you know, it was so close to the podium, but then there was all this disappointment or like, Oh, almost, you know, almost is one of the saddest words in like the English language. Like you almost did this. You know, you almost medaled, you almost were on the podium when in fact, you know, I wasn't expected to be in the first place. Like I wasn't expected to be on the podium. So to come forth at the Olympics and for people to be let down or disappointed or sad for me was really kind of confusing because I did way better than anyone could have ever have imagined. And that is, that was difficult to manage, you know, especially as an 18 year old, you know, if we all look back to when we were 18, typically 18 year olds, you know, easily overwhelmed. Like we don't know any, like, you know, 18 year olds can be there. That's like a, a senior in high school, right? So to manage that kind of feeling was really, really difficult for me. And yeah, just the feeling of letting everyone down that can weigh really heavy on a teenager or young adult's shoulders. You said something in the documentary and out of everything that was said by anyone, this was the thing that grabbed me the most. You said when an Olympian breaks a bone, everyone rushes to help. The world is so accepting of our physical injuries, but what happens when our brains break? We get left in the dark. It's ignorance. And that ignorance has created a world that doesn't understand depression, that doesn't understand mental health. That really grabbed me out of everything that was said in the documentary. Why isn't there an organization that's been formed to help Olympians, not only with mental health, but also to figure out what's next in their life? Because you're so young when you're done being an Olympian, you have the rest of your life in front of you. Um, yeah, and that's, um, that's one of my favorite, like, perspectives on mental health in general, but specifically seeing about, like, really high-achieving athletes, kind of like what I said at the beginning where, yeah, there's an ignorance when it comes to mental health that, um, especially when, you know, it doesn't present as you think. Like, you think depression is feeling really sad and, like, crying your eyes out and, um, after a really traumatic event or when you don't have anything, you know, hopeful when in fact, like that's not, it doesn't always present that way. And it can happen to anyone. It is not based on like, oh, well, you have an Olympic medal. Therefore, you know, you're immune 
to like clinical depression, to suicidal episodes or ideation, like to, you know, that's not, it doesn't come with an immunity against anything the same way that you can be in peak conditioning in the best shape of your life. You know, that doesn't make you immune to injuries, like things happen. And I don't know why there's not an organization that there aren't as many resources, um, because when you have an injury, I mean, you receive the best care possible. Um, I remember when I had a foot injury, um, you know, I was rushed to like the top sports doctor. Um, like I had a bone simulator uh, to help grow the bone back together. It was, you know, I was sent to um, Kobe Bryant's um, PT, like the best of the best. And then meanwhile, when you're showing signs of mental illness, First off, it's always seen as behavioral. Oh, well, you're being negative. Yeah, because the chemicals in my brain are off. Um, that's, yeah, it's absolutely. Or, oh, it's all in your head. Absolutely. It's a mental illness. Um, you know, it's like, oh, well, you should see someone. And that's kind of the end of the line. Or it's like, oh, you could talk to a sports psychologist, which those can be great, but like, what about a regular psychologist? What about a psychiatrist? What about just like a regular therapist? You know, where are those? Like, where are those resources? Where's that wing of um, the Olympic Training Center um, or within the federations? I don't know. Do you hope that as part of people seeing the weight of gold documentary, that maybe that's the good thing to come out of this? Maybe there is more of a emphasis on, on mental health and maybe there is an organization that's set up where a regular psychologist, not just a sports psychologist is provided to the athletes. Yeah. I had always, um, especially after what I call my quarter life crisis, um, uh, so it's like my depressive episode, my mental breakdown, whatever you want to call it, um, that I, you know, that moment in my life. Um, and then I was looking before I decided to come back to competitive skating. It was always one of my, in like the past like four years, it's been one of my dreams to open uh, a mental health wing at the Olympic Training Center. Um, there's one in Colorado, there's one in Lake Placid, um, or just various places like that. Because when I enter treatments, you know, I was like, wait, this is really, I remember they had like a meditation, like relaxation room, but not just, you know, with incense and the comfy couch. Um, and just that kind of like, you know, how great would it be to just, if you could even just get a week of what I got in treatments. Um, and a huge amount of that was, like validation because I feel, and like I kind of said, like when your brain breaks, so to speak, you are invalidated because of things that you have. Somebody will always have it worse than you, but that one person, the person that has it worse off in the entire world, but they are not the only person entitled um, to feel badly, to feel depressed, you know, to like, you know, to throw a pity party. Sometimes it's necessary just to sit with, the hurt that you have, you are entitled to that. And it's not just the person that has it worse. And the ignorance around it is really shocking. And how many, and not to mention the people, what about the people that didn't make the Olympics? The people that were just as good, but they just missed out on the team. And then they, you know, a lot of times it's described as like, oh, they fell out of the sport. They kind of fell out of love with it. Or they were suffering from like a mental health condition because that kind of devastation, because it, you know, quote on, if, at least if you made it, that, you know, that feels a little bit better. But the people that just missed out on the Olympics that were nationally ranked, had national medals, won nationals, but never went to the Olympics. You know, what about, what about them? You know, there's just not anything in place. And I like I kind of said in that quote, um, it's just ignorance. And it's ignorance about mental health and it's ignorance about Olympians with mental health. Gracie, what was the turning point for you? You mentioned in the New York Times article in 2019, you mentioned in this documentary, you sought treatment, 
was there a turning point for you where you said, I absolutely need to get help? And then you've been so brave speaking out about mental health issues. And I think you've helped countless number of people, athletes and otherwise, who maybe didn't have the courage to speak out or, or go get help. What was a turning point for you? Um, so one of the big turning points was actually at um, kind of like there's a in the summer, uh, the figure skating team has like a it's called chance camp. Um, but it's we head to Colorado Springs at the Olympic Training Center for a week where we kind of have to check in before the fall and winter competitive season starts. And I was to say a hot mess is an understatement. Like I was I was severely clinically depressed. I was, you know, kind of, I was having the suicidal ideation. Um, it was the bleakest that it has ever been. And the signs were obvious, but, um, I did get on the ice and, um, and showed what is like, didn't even really have anything to show because I really hadn't been training because I had been clinically depressed. And I was invalidated by a lot of people where it was seen as behavioral, where like, why aren't you in shape? You know, why haven't you been doing this or this or this? Or, and in the sport of skating, you know, a lot, I would say like probably 75%, if we're being honest, run into an eating disorder situation, men and women. And of course, one of the first things that was told to me was, um, you're overweight and that's why you're having trouble. And not one person really asked like, what's, um, what's happening here? Like, why are we, cause I always loved working out. I've always loved skating. And then there was a very sudden and obvious change. And instead it was just like, it was as if I just couldn't hack it anymore. Um, and then there was there were two people, one was for the USOC and one was um, employed by US Figure Skating, and they actually sat kind of down with me in a way. But I was just kind of talking and rambling and just venting really about all the things that had transpired, trauma related and otherwise. And they were the first people that could like ask and like heard my story of everything that had happened. And they said, "Oh my God, like this is." They're like, this is trauma, Gracie. Like, this is really traumatic, heavy stuff. Um, like, you need help with this. And they were the ones that ended up spearheading, getting me into treatments and subsequently afterwards have helped me, you know, just kind of like get back on my feet and have been there for me um, in a really supportive way. And then once I agreed to check into treatments, did that. And then I started speaking out at first. It was just more of an explanation of why I dipped off like the face of the earth for 45 days. Um, you don't have cell phones in treatment. And then people were genuinely surprised and kind of encouraging because they're like, wait, what happened? Like, what's your story? Um, I think because I was just really candid about my struggles, which in the figure skating community especially was really, really limited. And then it just kind of, and then I realized like how, like how little people knew, not just my story, but the stories of so many people that I know and like other really high level skaters that I've like personally talked with that have parallel stories. Um, they just didn't have that breakthrough moment that launched them into like an actual treatment facility of some or something like that. And that was, it was, it was really upsetting at first, actually, that nobody knew, nobody knew what to do. Nobody knew how to handle it. And that there, yeah, like you said, like there wasn't anything in place for when something other than your body breaks, like when your soul breaks, when your brain breaks, when your heart, like, you know, when you just can't take it anymore, anything like that was suddenly people didn't know what to do. What are you doing these days to keep yourself healthy? Um, so a variety of things. Um, have a therapist. Um, I do feel like people really misjudge therapy. You know, there's like a whole talking about your feelings. Okay, it's like whatever, right? That person is just 
you talk about whatever they can help you through relationships through childhood trauma through not even romantic relationships but how to work better with other people um it's really really increased my empathy for others as well as myself and I have a really good support group and I was really honest like as the support group I call them like the people in my nest so to speak um being honest with them about um like if you see this behavior um this is a red flag and if you see this behavior this is a big red flag like these are things when I'm starting to be in kind of a bad way again and if you could help me and support me when those are happening, if you could bring them up and say, Hey, um, like you're not sleeping again. Um, you're not eating as much as you should. Um, you're, you know, you're withdrawing from others. Like, you know, these are signs that something else is happening. So do you want to be distracted from it? And like, you know, like, let's go out, you know, like, let's go out to eat somewhere. Or in this case, like, I'll come, like, my friend is like, um, I'll get takeout and like, I'll just come over and we can either talk about it or I can distract you from it. But those are really big things where a lot of times there are some, because not all mental health issues, um, if they don't show or present as like the stereotypical way, they really go unnoticed. Um, but one of mine is when I start to get crazy busy, that's actually... I use that as like a coping mechanism. So I just, you know, I just do so many things to distract me from whatever is bothering me or not sleeping. Um, you know, just like getting up, just staying up too late. Cause you know, I was doing something productive, you know, but it's really what it is. is um, I don't want to sleep or I'm having insomnia because I can't sleep because I'm stressed, like things like that. And really being honest with the people around me to help keep me accountable. And then I do, the same for them. So that's been huge for me. And of course, um, love me some therapy. Gracie, very last question. You returned to the ice at the 2020 U.S. Figure Skating Championships. As someone who had always strived to be first and flawless, how good did it feel just to be back on the ice? So it felt 80, I would say like 85% truly amazing. And then there was, of course, hmm, 10, 15% of me that remembered what it like, what it felt like to be more competitive and was very, was very nitpicky. And like, I could kind of feel that like intense level of perfectionism. But then, you know, I had to remind myself where we started, where we came from, and all of the things that had happened along the way to kind of put it in perspective. Um, but it genuinely felt really good to just skate and perform to the best that I could in that moment and not be tied down with the expect, like my own high expectations, or I don't know if other people had expectations, but just focusing on, you know, like with my team, what our goals were, what we were going for, what happened, how did it go? And then breaking it down and just really enjoying uh, and working the process of it all. Um, And of course I, the crowd gave me a standing ovation after my long, which was really emotional, I think, for, like, me and everyone. Um, so it was really, really cool. It was really different than every other nationals I competed at, but in a really good, warm way. Gracie Gold, one of the voices in the new documentary, The Weight of Gold, it premieres July 29th on HBO. You can follow Gracie on Instagram at GracieGold95. Gracie, continued success to you. Thanks for your bravery. And thanks for sharing your story on Sports Business Radio. I appreciate it. Thank you so much. I really appreciate it. Hi, Brian Berger here from Sports Business Radio. Underdog Fantasy is the official gaming partner of Sports Business Radio and the fastest growing fantasy app. Underdog is a variety of daily and season-long fantasy games that you can play. Best Ball Mania has $15 million in pool prize money and first place wins $3 million. You can play as many entries as you want, and once you draft your team, you sit back and enjoy. No lineup change is needed, and Underdog pulls your best performers and gives you those points. You never have to worry about leaving the wrong player on the bench again. 
Griggs and I will have our teams drafted for the upcoming NFL season, and this is a great way to enjoy all the upside of fantasy football without having to worry about maintaining your lineup each week. For daily fantasy, I love playing Pick'em and Rivals. With Pick'em, if I get five picks right, I can win 20 times my money. It's a fun way to do over-unders on player stats as well as pit players against each other. We've got a special offer for sports business radio listeners. New users get up to $100 matched on their first deposit when they use the code SBR, like sports business radio. SBR is the code to use. So download the app at underdogfantasy.com or in your app store and then enter the promo code SBR to get up to $100 to play with. Also, Make sure to listen to my conversation on Sports Business Radio with Underdog Fantasy founder and co-CEO Jeremy Levine. He shares the unique story of how he founded Underdog Fantasy, and he has great insight into the future of daily fantasy and sports betting. Thanks to Underdog Fantasy for being the official gaming partner of Sports Business Radio. Well, that's it for this edition of Sports Business Radio. Thanks for tuning in. And thanks to the Sports Business Radio team, Brian Griggs, Josh Blank, Ryan Nakajima, and Nicole Wardle. I'm Brian Berger. Have a great week, and we'll talk to you soon right here on Sports Business Radio. This and every SBR podcast is available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, and your favorite listening app. Follow Sports Business Radio on Facebook, Twitter at SB Radio, Instagram at Sports Business Radio, and online at sportsbusinessradio.com. Sports Business Radio is produced by Brian Griggs and Griggs Productions. GriggsProductions.com.